Welcome to the return of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 145 for the first half of September 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Modern Flat Earth Thought, Part 1. The purpose of this episode is to start to address several of the claims made by the modern Flat Earth claimants. Now, you might be thinking that this is something I covered way back in episode 33, back from May 1st, 2012. That episode was quite short, and I really just scratched the surface of the Flat Earth movement as it had existed for roughly the last century. I also talked about a way to prove Earth is round through a method figured out by the Greek Eratosthenes, But that's kind of gaming it for this episode, so we won't go there. Since that episode came out, starting around 2014, a new breed of flat-earthers started to pop up, and their antics on social media even elicited a response from one of the more well-known popularizers of astronomy today, Neil deGrasse Tyson. In the interest of this new resurgence of flat-earth claims, and due to many requests from listeners and even a former guest, I think it's time that we re-examine this concept. Not because it has any validity, let's get that right out of the way first. This will still be a fair and balanced show as usual, but the purpose, as almost always, is to use examples of wrong arguments and reasoning to demonstrate the way that the world really works, for these instances of wrongitude are more often more interesting than laying things out in a dry textbook-style format. And so, just for you, I've listened to and taken notes on approximately seven hours of people making their best arguments for a modern version of the Flat Earth. These great luminaries were Eric Dubay, Mark Sargent, and Marty Leeds. I'm going to try to mix and match different parts of each set of claims, as I usually do, to try to make cohesive episodes, but I warn you now that that's not entirely possible because they're kind of all over the place. So, in this part one, I'm going to focus on some of the claims made by Eric Dubay that very much center around everyday experience, the curvature of the planet, and its shape. Your everyday experience, I think, is a really good first start to this claim to look into, not only for this set of beliefs, but also for the podcast's return. Just our common sense, everyday perception of the Earth, it is flat, as far as we can tell, Uh, It is motionless, as far as we can tell, and everything in the sky is revolving around us, as far as we can tell. If nobody told us otherwise, we'd logically assume that the Earth was flat, motionless, with everything in the sky revolving around us. I think that this is a good first claim to examine, because I think that most people would agree with Eric. Our everyday experience is very local to us. It's very egocentric. And for some people, of course, it's more egocentric than for other people. In my weirder moments, I have literally been in an elevator and wondered if the other people in the elevator had the same kind of conscious thought as I did, or if they were almost automatons who may cease to exist if I weren't there, almost a Lieutenant Barkley end program moment on the holodeck. But this isn't a philosophy show, and as I said, this was one of my weirder moments. Suffice to say, our experiences are based on our perceptions, and our perceptions are limited to what our senses can tell us. If you're senso-normal, meaning that you have the same basic senses that 
most humans share, then that means that you're limited to what you can see, feel, touch, taste, and hear. There's a reason why the Marvel comic book universe invented something called the cosmic awareness, or why Rose Tyler was going to die as the bad wolf until the doctor removed the time vortex energy from her. Humans are, by their very construction, quite limited, all things considered. If something is well beyond our everyday experience, we have a much harder time understanding or even accepting it. This is why all of the quote-unquote easy physics was figured out centuries ago, and the harder stuff, the stuff that is harder for us to intuit, has only been figured out recently or is still being worked on. For example, quantum mechanics. If it made intuitive sense, it would have been figured out long ago. That's why we have the scientific process. It lets us formulate ideas and design ways of testing those ideas, even if they're much bigger, smaller, or generally different from ourselves in our everyday experience. This is also why skepticism doesn't come naturally. It's so easy to just accept your friend's anecdote of that, you know, maybe cupping helped her shave a few seconds off her time at the Olympics, or your brother's husband's former college roommate's astrologer seems to be so accurate, there, there must be something going on, right? Or that time maybe somebody predicted an earthquake and it happened, clearly that shows the validity of their technique. Except not. I would argue that the shape of our planet is not intuitive, and that common sense from just our own limited experience on its surface would likely argue for the planet being flat and not a globe. But that doesn't mean it's true. Eric claimed that you really could show that Earth is flat, and the first way he said was that you could go really, really high, and that people have done this. And you can prove that this is the case as well, for instance, with the horizon. As you rise up, no matter how high you go on the top of Mount Everest, or if you go in a balloon higher and higher, as far as 20 miles up and higher, we've gotten independent balloons have gone up with cameras. The horizon remains flat all the way around and rises to the eye of the camera all the way up. Now, if the Earth were a ball, no matter how big, the horizon is said to be the curvature of the ball. So as you rose up, the horizon would stay where it, uh, where it was, and you'd have to look down, if you're in a hot air balloon, down further and further as you rose up and up, and the horizon would be below you. But in fact, as high as any non-NASA, RASA, or other Freemasonic space agency has ever shown us, as far as any independent camera has ever gone up with an independent rocket or uh, balloon, as far as 20 miles uh, up, totally flat, and rises to the eye of the observer. I'm not entirely sure what his big thing is with 20 miles up, and I'm not even entirely sure of what each component of his claim is in that minute-long clip. I could figure out that the basic claim that he's making is that every high-altitude picture or movie that's not been taken by someone or some organization controlled by the Freemasons, more on that later, has shown a flat horizon. If this were a decade ago, I might have to do some work to debunk this, or perhaps even say there's no way to debunk this without using quote-unquote official video from an organization such as NASA. But today is not a decade ago, obviously. The technology exists such that even high school classes can build, and have built, their own weather balloon with a camera and take pictures and movie from tens of miles or kilometers, with pick your unit of choice, above Earth's surface. And if a high school class can do it, you can do it too. The cost is a few hundred dollars US. In fact, 
YouTube has many, many movies posted by different, completely random, independent groups and individuals who have done this. I make a point of it being on YouTube because conspiracy theorists tend to use YouTube as one of their primary research areas. I'll have a few links in the show notes. The only caveat to this, and the go-to excuse from the Flat Earthers when confronted by evidence such as this, is epitomized by Flat Earther Mark Sargent. Mark likes to dismiss pretty much any camera evidence of a horizon showing curvature as being due to lens distortions. Being a semi-pro photographer, I can tell you that he's sort of right, but he's mostly wrong. Wide-angle lenses, such as on the popular action camera called GoPro, do have a distortion, and this distortion makes things look curvy. But GoPros, and all lenses really, can have their distortion very, very precisely mapped and then corrected in software. Adobe's Camera Raw software does a very good job with this. And, as a side note, we do this all the time for every modern camera on spacecraft. In fact, astronomers make mistakes too. One of the reasons why it's taken so long to process some of the images from New Horizons and make planet-wide global mosaics is that we knew the distortion for our panchromatic camera, but in the software, we had the distortion going backwards. So everything was sort of stretched instead of put back to where it actually should have gone. As I said, astronomers can make mistakes too, we're only human. But we were able to figure out our mistake because things weren't lining up properly. The correction, once you have your plus and minus signs figured out, is really quite easy to do. First, you can print up a pretty dense grid or just use graph paper. You then take your camera and make sure that it's perfectly parallel to the grid, such that the lens is pointed straight down and is perpendicular to the grid. Then, you take your picture. You look at it. You know that the grid is supposed to be even, and you can calculate based on how many pixels the camera has and the distance to the grid exactly where every line was supposed to be and that it was supposed to be straight. Well, you know it's supposed to be straight, you don't have to calculate that. So you have a model for exactly how the camera lens distorts the image, and that means that you can correct for it. Now, of the very few YouTube videos that I watched, and they're actually pretty cool, I do recommend taking a look at least one of them, they haven't corrected for this kind of distortion. It was neat enough for your average uh, Joe six-pack or whatever to have a weather balloon with a camera that they built fly up into the stratosphere and take pictures. That's pretty neat. Most people aren't out there trying to prove Earth is round. So with that said, they don't correct this, but you can still get a feel for the distortion because the videos aren't that steady. Most of the videos start out showing the ground just after they launched their weather balloon or their balloon or whatever with their camera, and you can see where the horizon is, and you know that it's supposed to be straight when they're on the ground. From looking at this, your brain can actually build up sort of a visual map of where and how things are distorted in the video that's being shown. I was able to do this after watching for a few minutes or whatever. So you have this in your head, and then you watch the video as the camera rises and rises tens of kilometers or tens of miles. At this point, it doesn't really matter which unit. And with the map that you've built up in your head, you can tell that the horizon curvature is due to the actual curvature of the planet and is not due to the lens itself. Now, true, in some of the videos that I watched, the horizon goes from convex to concave and all over the place because the balloon isn't very steady. But 
if you've sort of built up this mental map of where things are in the lens and how they're distorted, then you can tell this reasonably easily. And, as I said, you can do this yourself. You don't have to rely on the Freemasons or the Illuminatis or the whomever in order to prove that the Earth is round through this method of sending up your own balloon, assuming you're willing to spend a few hundred dollars. However, there is another aspect to the curvature argument. They say the ball Earth is 25,000 miles in circumference, and using spherical trigonometry, it figures out to 8 inches of curvature per mile squared. The mile is squared, so for 2 miles, it would be 2 times 2, 4 times 8 inches, 32 inches. And for the third mile, it's 3 squared, which is 3 times 3, 9 times 8 is 72. So you're going 8, 32, 72, 128 inches, and so on. And this is the kind of curvature that would exist on a ball, and specifically on a ball 25,000 miles in circumference, as they say it is. I cut that clip short at only 38 seconds. He went on to say that people have tried to measure this, and even if the calculation is wrong, that it's a different number, the curvature still isn't there. The host then gives an example a few minutes later, discussing the Statue of Liberty in New York. The Statue of Liberty. It stands 326 feet above sea level, and on a clear day can be seen as far as 60 miles away. Now, if the Earth was a globe at the dimensions that they give us, that would put Lady Liberty at an impossible 2,074 feet below the horizon. These examples seem hard to rectify unless there's some obvious answer that I'm missing, but I would say this is a pretty compelling thread of evidence, my man. What he's missing is that it's not that simple. There is no simple 8 inches of curvature per mile squared. That's a polynomial simplification of trigonometry. It could be because I'm sick or that it's been almost two decades since I took geometry, but it took me about a half hour to really work out how to do this math. And then I realized that Wikipedia does it for you on its Horizon page. Fortunately, they get the same numbers that I do, so they did it right. There's also an Earth Curve Calculator, which I'll link to in the show notes. Anyway, the first answer is that it's not as simple as stated. But the Statue of Liberty statement is pretty correct. If your eye is on the ground, your horizon distance is zero, and the Statue of Liberty's base would be about 2,400 feet below the horizon or about 0.7 kilometers. If, instead, you are in, say, an average building in Manhattan, plenty of which are more than 600 feet high, or 180 meters, your horizon distance is 30 miles, and the base of the Statue of Liberty would only be 600 feet below the horizon. You would need to be at a height of nearly 950 feet before you could see the tip of the Statue of Liberty above the horizon. Does this prove a flat Earth? No. There are four things going on here. First, the Flat Earth proponents have left out an important part of your own height from the ground. Increasing your height would allow you to see farther away. And it's not linear. And it's not proportional. As a simple example, close to your own everyday experience, if you were on a perfectly smooth sphere and you were a short 5 feet tall, then you would see the ground up to about 2.74 miles away. If you were a tall six foot, you would be able to see an extra quarter mile. The second item that they leave out is atmospheric refraction. Using the simple approximation rather than the calculus, because of the bending of light by the atmosphere, you can see roughly an extra 8% than you could otherwise. 
So instead of a building 950 feet tall, you would only need to be in about a 910 foot tall building. But the third part that they have ignored is that this claim, for all I can find doing some searching on the intertubes, appears to be completely made up. The only pages online that seem to discuss the distance from which the Statue of Liberty can be seen are all related to flat earth, either making the claim or asking if the claim is true and looking for a way to debunk it. That trips my skepticense and makes me think that the claim itself may not even be valid. And, as Brian Dunning on Skeptoid says, the first part to investigating a claim is to see whether it even exists to begin with. Or, and here's the fourth piece that they don't talk about, there's that interesting phrase at the beginning of, on a clear day, in that clip that I shared. Why put that in? Perhaps it's because it just means general visibility. Different weather forecasts or conditions will often give a visibility based on precipitation and particulates in the air. It's entirely possible that this is a false memory, but I seem to recall visiting the Empire State Building with my maternal grandparents when I was young and it talking about visibility and how far you could see and also pointing out different landmarks in an image that you could tell whether the visibility was, say, 5 miles, 10 miles, 15 miles, or whatever. With the Empire State Building standing 1,454 feet, or 443 meters high, you could see 60 miles or more from its observatory at 1,224 feet, or 373 meters, if it were a clear day, which in Manhattan is quite rare. So, to recap, since I've rambled on a, a bit, or a lot, it's not as simple as 8 inches per mile squared, the example itself about the Statue of Liberty appears to only exist in Flat Earth realms, so I don't think it's actually real, but even if it were, it could be done if you were in a tall building, or the original claim that's been co-opted by the Flat Earthers could have been rooted in the simple idea of discussing atmospheric visibility and using an easily recognizable, relatively tall landmark as an example without thinking about curvature's effects. I haven't heard a Flat Earther use this claim, but I'm going to talk about it because I think it's neat and I wanted to put it out there before someone else does, or you, the listener, happen to email me, which isn't going to happen anyway, but here it goes. I love visiting northern Arizona due to the numerous state and national parks and monuments. Of course, one of the most recognizable and visited is the Grand Canyon, which I've been to several times. Being a desert, one would normally think of the area as flat, or at least with very little obscuring your view. And, being a desert, you tend to have really good visibility and can sometimes see over 100 kilometers away on an average day. At many of these state and national parks and monuments, there are going to be signs pointing out very distant landmarks from your vantage point and listing how far away they are. Some of these are many tens of miles away. Sometimes, on a very clear day, from the Painted Desert, you can see the San Francisco Peaks, 120 miles away. But shouldn't those be 9,602 feet, or 2.9 kilometers, below the horizon? No. While the American Southwest appears flat, it's not. It has enormous topographic changes, and you'll notice this if you drive more than an hour in pretty much any direction, especially on the drive between Phoenix and Flagstaff. Pintado Point, which they make this claim on the sign in the Painted Desert, is at an elevation of 5,866 feet, 
1.8 kilometers above sea level, which is actually below my elevation in Colorado. In contrast, Humphreys Point is the tallest part of the San Francisco Peaks and Flagstaff, and it's 12,633 feet, 3.85 kilometers high. Not only is there this absolute elevation difference of over 2 kilometers, but Pintado Point is about 250 feet above the surrounding plain, as in, if you go beyond the wall by a few feet, you are going to drop 250 feet. Not only that, but there is a broad downward warp in the topography between Flagstaff and the Painted Desert, such that the effective horizon almost literally drops out of the way from obscuring your view. Plus, the atmospheric refraction getting you an extra 8%. All of those combined let you see over 120 miles away on a clear day. With all of that said, in an act of kindness to the conspiracy-minded, in a final clip on the curvature for this episode, here is a 35-second rant that falls into two categories. One, it gives you more of an idea of this claimant's mindset, and two, I had to listen to it, so now you do too. The only place curvature exists is in NASA photos and videos, and those can be proven to be CGI fakes, and the early ones were literally taken through a round window to make the Earth appear round. Um, and that's it. It's just photo trickery and brainwashing that's got the world thinking that we're on a ball spinning around the sun with a magical force called gravity holding us on the underside of this spinning ball. Uh, it's all just brainwashing that we've received. It's pseudoscience accepted as, as legit science. I'll be talking more about the space-based claims of the modern flat earthers in later parts in this series, but in the final claim for this episode, I'm going to talk about the Earth's shape. This plays off of the one-minute, nine-second clip, which is an exchange between the host and Eric. Neil deGrasse Tyson is on TV, and he's talking about the shape of the Earth, and he's talking about how they just discovered now that the Earth is more pear-shaped than it is round, <laughs> and... I'm thinking, well, we've been seeing pictures of the Earth from space, and it's a perfect circle. So either you don't know what you're talking about, or those pictures aren't real. Uh, this is a serious disconnect that's hard to rectify, Neil. Absolutely, yeah. And they, they've said that it's a sphere, and then they've said that it's an oblate spheroid flattened at the poles. So it's kind of like smushed. And now more recently they're saying it's an oblate spheroid flattened at the poles with a bulge in the south. So it's kind of pear-shaped. Uh, so they keep changing it, but you're right, the, the pictures that they've given us, they show a perfect circle. Uh, they don't show uh, any sort of bulge or oblateness as they claim exists. Uh, and, th and people say, oh, well, it's, it's just not enough to be seen. But uh, they're claiming it's quite a bit. He said it's uh, the amount of Everest above sea level is how much more oblate it is, supposedly. Right, you would think that would show up in the pictures. <laughs> I wanted to save this claim for last and use it as a wrap-up for this episode's main segment because it really brings us somewhat full circle, or full spheroid, so to speak. In any scientific endeavor, we usually start with the simplest model. And if that works well, but it doesn't quite explain everything, we usually add to it, or subtract a little bit from it. If that works better, then there are these still little, littler, niggling small things, then we want to add to it again, and so on and so forth. Think of it like this. 
you might see a, uh, a thumbnail picture, a tiny image that someone has posted online, and it might look kind of interesting to you, but you don't really know because you can't really quite tell what it is. You click on it, and a larger version appears on your internet browser. Say this is a Google image search, so it appears maybe two or three times larger, but you can see that it's actually much, much larger, so if you click on that again, now it opens as an even bigger version. And now you can tell what it is, and it's a really neat painting by some new hip artist that's all the rage with the kids these days. You like the overall look of it, but you still want to see more detail. You find the artist's website, and they happen to have an even bigger picture of the painting. And you click on that and open that in a browser, and now you can see all the detail you want. Great! Now you go to the artist's studio, or to the gallery that they happen to have their work on consignment, and you can see even more detail in person. And you're maybe a little bit weird, and you even brought a magnifying glass. And with that, you can see even more detail. But if you were to describe this painting to a young child, you would probably explain it at the level of that initial thumbnail, or maybe that initial Google image search. If you were to explain the painting to a child who's maybe 10 years old, you may want to give the level of detail of that initial click, the image of maybe your friend has posted it online to Facebook, so it's in between the size of the Google image search and the full-fledged image. Skipping ahead, if you were instead to explain this to your bank loan officer trying to justify a loan to purchase the painting, you may want to go into the extreme level of detail that you could only see with your magnifying glass. By the same token, that's exactly what's going on with this audio clip. To a reasonable approximation, Earth is a perfect sphere. If you want to get a little bit more detailed, Earth is a biaxial ellipsoid, meaning that its equatorial axis is a little bit bigger than its polar axis, aka it bulges at the equator as most of us do as we start to age. The current standard for this is the WGS84, or World Geodetic System Standardized in 1984. It has a major axis, meaning the longer axis, of 6,378.137 kilometers, and a polar axis of 6,356.7523142 kilometers based on a flattening parameter of 1 over 298 point blah blah, who cares. That's the reference ellipsoid. It then has deviations from this at a resolution of roughly 200 kilometers. So before I go further, just to recap, you have a pretty much perfect sphere, it's not quite perfect, and so we have a reference ellipsoid, which is characterized by a long axis and then a degree of flattening, which also gives you the short axis. On top of that biaxial ellipsoid, you can then talk about perturbations, or little differences from that perfect biaxial ellipsoid. These deviations are in what are known as spherical harmonics. I have a link to Wikipedia in the show notes about spherical harmonics, but I'm going to really try to give you the basic idea for it. Spherical harmonics are a way of interpreting or representing the amount of deviation from a sphere. And you do that in three dimensions, which is why it's spherical and not circular harmonics or something like that. If a low-order spherical harmonic has a lot of power or a large coefficient or it's big, then that means that you're going to see really big, broad deviations from a sphere. 
if you have a higher order spherical harmonic that has a lot of power or a large coefficient or whatever in front of it, then you're going to see a really big deviation, but it's going to be really, really localized from that sphere. It's not going to be broad over a large area of it. It's just going to be in a very small area. So the spherical harmonic powers are a way of representing the amount of deviation and the order of the harmonic are a way of representing how broad over the surface area of that sphere the deviation is. Or, put another way, it basically lets you represent a complex sphere-like shape very, very compactly, just listing the amounts that each spherical harmonic contributes to the final shape. It's easy to measure the lower-order spherical harmonics of planetary bodies. It's much harder to measure the higher-order spherical harmonics because you need higher resolution, and you need more, well, storage space for your data. So the 1984 system uses a geoid for the planet that has 32,757 terms in the spherical harmonic expansion in order to describe Earth's shape from the reference biaxial ellipsoid. And those roughly 33,000 terms only get you a spatial resolution of about 200 kilometers. The EGM-2008, or Earth Gravitational Model, put simply, strangely enough, out in 2008, uses over 4.6 million, with an M, terms. And that means that instead of having a spatial resolution of 200 kilometers, it's about 10 kilometers. Now, I digressed quite a bit here. The point was... Again, flat Earth stuff in the shape of the Earth. The key point is that we're talking about levels of detail. First, we are very close to a sphere. Second, we're actually closer to a biaxial ellipsoid. We're so close that the deviations between the polar and equatorial poles are only about one part in 300, or about 21.4 kilometers, or a bit over 0.3%. That, to me at least, seems perfectly close enough that I'd be perfectly willing to tell a schoolchild that, yes, Earth is a sphere. Then, from this biaxial ellipsoid, further deviations are measured, and when you can use spherical harmonics of order, say, 2,159 coefficients to degree 2,190, or over 4.6 million terms, you get a resolution of about 10 kilometers on the ground. At that resolution the geoid's deviations from the biaxial ellipsoid are about 107 meters below and 85.4 meters above, or over a factor of 100 smaller than the biaxial ellipsoid's deviations from a sphere. So again, to recap, because again, this is a lot of numbers, we are a sphere, but then to about one part in 300, we're a biaxial ellipse. Then, we vary from the biaxial ellipse by about one part in 111, or 0.003% from a sphere. It's those deviations from the biaxial ellipse, so Earth's shape, if you subtract out the biaxial ellipsoid, where Earth looks a little bit pear-shaped because the positive deviations are a bit more in the southern hemisphere than they are in the northern hemisphere. And then... If you want to get to even finer detail than the 10-kilometer resolution, you can, of course, get to local topography. Obvious things like Mount Everest would be a deviation, again, from the reference, but it would be an even higher-order spherical harmonic. In other words, it might seem giant to us, but relative to Earth, it's pretty much nothing. 
and its effect on Earth's shape is really nothing. And so, going back to that clip I played for you at the beginning of this part of the main segment, the host has set up a false dichotomy, and, if I may say so, pretty arrogantly at that. Before you claim that a scientist, an astrophysicist no less, doesn't know what he's talking about with respect to the shape of the Earth, or that all the pictures of Earth are fake, perhaps you should bother to do a little bit of real research rather than relying on some conspiratorial nutjob. And before you think that I'm being a little bit too harsh on Eric Dubay for calling him a conspiratorial nutjob, listen to this clip. I mean, our eyes and experience tell us the Earth is flat and motionless, and everything in the sky revolves around us. But when we cease to believe our own eyes and experience, we have to prostrate ourselves at the feet of these very pseudo-scientists who are blinding us, treat them as experts, astronomical priests who have special knowledge only they can access, like the Hubble telescope. So by brainwashing us of something so gigantic and fundamental, it actually makes every other kind of lesser indoctrination a piece of cake. <laughs> Earth being the flat, fixed center of the universe around which everything in the heavens revolves gives a special importance and significance not only to Earth, but to us humans, the most intelligent among the intelligent designers' designs. By turning Earth into a spinning ball thrown around the sun and shot through infinite space from a godless Big Bang, they turn humanity into a random, meaningless, purposeless accident of a blind, dumb universe. Mm -hmm. So it's like trauma-based mind control beating the divinity out of us with their mental manipulations. Uh, people are always asking, you know, why do they do this? I mean, this is... I mean, other than the obvious profit margin motive, NASA being the biggest black budget black hole in existence, sucking in over $30 billion taxpayer money for the fake moon landings alone. <laughs> Nowadays, hundreds of billions of dollars, and not just NASA, but RASA and all the other fake space organizations around the world giving CGI images for hundreds of billions of dollars. So this modern atheist Big Bang heliocentric globe-earth chance evolution paradigm spiritually controls humanity by removing God or any sort of intelligent design and replaces purposeful divine creation with haphazard random cosmic coincidence. And so by removing Earth from the motionless center of the universe, these masons have moved us physically and metaphysically from a place of supreme importance to one of complete nihilistic indifference. If the Earth is the center of the universe, then the ideas of God, creation, and a purpose for human existence are resplendent. But if the Earth is just one of billions of planets revolving around billions of stars and billions of galaxies, then the ideas of God, creation, and a specific purpose for Earth and human existence become highly implausible. So by surreptitiously indoctrinating us into their scientific materialist sun worship, not only do we lose faith in anything beyond the material, we gain absolute faith in materiality, superficiality, status, selfishness, hedonism, and consumerism. If there's no God and everyone's just an accident, then all that really matters is me, me, me. <laughs> so they've turned Madonna and the mother of God into a, the material girl living in a material world. Their rich, powerful corporations with their slick sun cult logos sell us idols to worship, slowly taking over the world while we tacitly believe their science, vote for their politicians, buy their products, listen to their music, watch their movies, all sacrificing our souls at the altar of materialism. <laughs> okay, that was fun, wasn't it? Now, I was going to end with that clip and you know, just give the guy the final word, but I do need to make one response. It's a ridiculously, unfortunately common misconception. 
NASA's budget is actually less than 10% of what Eric claims. Its fiscal year 2016, which is October 2015 through September 2016, budget was $19.3 billion. The last time numbers were available as a fraction of the federal budget was for 2014, and NASA's budget is literally one-half of 1%. It has been less than 1% of the federal budget since 1994, and it was only just a tiny bit above that for 91, 92, and 93. It was below 1% of the federal budget for the 15 years before that, 1975 to 1990. The years before that, it was quite a bit more, and that was due to the Apollo program. There are three additional segments for this episode. First is the logical fallacy segment, and there were two logical fallacies that I did mention in the episode. According to my notes, I've already addressed the anecdotal argument in episode 131, so I'm going to focus in this logical fallacy segment on the false dichotomy. The false dichotomy is one of the more basic logical fallacies that I've discussed, directly under the group of logical fallacies that we often use in skepticism, the informal fallacy. Since it's been a while, the informal fallacy is where the logic used within the argument is flawed, But that doesn't mean that the argument itself is necessarily wrong. The false dichotomy, specifically, is where you present a choice between two items and then make the other person choose between those two, but that choice leaves out other perfectly valid options. False dichotomies are often used in the ufological field, where they present the idea that either those lights you saw were aliens or a secret government craft. Instead, there are plenty of other options, such as, in my own experience, where UFOs became IFOs, they were flocks of white birds, a street sign, a hobbyist quadcopter, and yes, in reality, I did once see a weather balloon. As often pointed out in this podcast show, young earth creationist arguments are often great for pointing out logical fallacies because they will often make use of pretty much all of them, often many at the same time. A good example of a false dichotomy from them is, well, I was just talking with someone last night about the claim that the moon proves recent creation, covered in episode 45. They say that if you trace the moon's current recession rate from Earth backwards in time, it has to have been sprung from Earth about 10 million years ago. That's because the moon is currently receding from Earth at a rate of about uh, something like 3.5 centimeters per year, or a little under an inch and a half per year. The false dichotomy that they present is that either this is true, or Earth and the Moon were created 6,000 years ago as they are now. In other words, 10 million years, or 6,000. As opposed to option 3, which is that the recession rate of the Moon, from Earth, has changed over time. This particular example would also happen to be a formal logical fallacy, the false premise, where they have implicitly assumed that the moon's recession rate has been constant, which is not true. This is a form of a syllogism, but let's move on because I can hear people getting bored. The second additional segment is feedback, actually specifically related to a previous episode. This was recently sent in by James F. related to episode 70, when I discussed Norman Bergram's book, The Ringmakers of Saturn. Bergram basically was the Richard Hoagland of his day, 
taking pictures of pictures and blowing them up in size, and each speck of dust was a giant alien spaceship. James has solved the mystery of at least one of them, though. There was a particular light source in one of the many images in Bergeron's book, and James discovered that it was there in the original image. Not only was it there, but oddly enough, it just so happens to be three spots, not one, but three spots of light in the version that's currently available online. In the false color composite, it's a yellow spot, a blue spot, and then a red spot. Only the red spot is within the rings themselves. James then found the original three images that were used to make this color composite image of Saturn, and what he found was exactly the same thing that caused the death of Phobos II mission in the Martian system. A spot of light that stays in the exact same place on the image frame, but it moves hundreds of thousands of miles or kilometers or whatever between images in space. In other words, this is a bright speck on the imager itself of Voyager 1. The imager was used with three different filters in order to get a color image of Saturn, and so the bright spot stayed in the same position on the imager, but it moved in space as the spacecraft itself moved. When NASA publicly released the image at the time, in whatever medium that Bergrun used in order to get his version, they simply removed the bright spots that were free-floating in space, but they left the one that fell on the rings in the image so they didn't have to make up the data of the rings. As James wrote in his email, how can someone put all the effort into writing a book and be so wrong? I'm pretty sure that the question was rhetorical, though, given the kind of material often related to this podcast. For the third additional short segment, I do want to thank everyone for sticking with the podcast, even though I've been on hiatus for... Well, more than half a year now. I do hope to be resuming now regular broadcasts uh, twice a month, roughly on the 1st and roughly on the 16th of the month, so two episodes per month. And, uh, well, more Flat Earth, more Hollow Earth, more creationism, more, well, lots and lots of different stuff. Uh, Don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, me personally on Twitter as DR, that's Dr. Astro Stu, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. Also, I will take the time in this main segment before the end credits to ask that everyone do rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website, or portal or service of choice, unless it's a ridiculously negative review, in which case I'm really not sure why you're still listening 42 and a half minutes in. And so, until next time... That wraps up this topic for the 145th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for this episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro, that's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, 
Then tell friends, family, and two random people that you may never meet in real life who don't already listen to the podcast.